How's it going? It's fixing to be a lot better, man. Welcome to Dazed and Confused 33 and a Third. I'm Jarf, and we are back for track 28, featuring the Alien Song, For Those Who Listen, by Mila Jovovich. And this track starts with Michelle strumming her guitar and staring up in the sky, and it ends with Slater saying the Founding Fathers were way into alien stuff. And our guest for this week is Josh. Welcome, Josh. Howdy. How's it going? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So I think we've got a fun track. And I found some interesting notes about the song. So I'm sure that we'll get into that. But just as an overview, was there a moment in this scene that spoke to you? Yeah. It. Uh, yes. I would say that it spoke to me on like a bunch of different levels. Cool. What level? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you can't just give us that. Yeah. <laughs> well, so first and foremost, it's like a quintessential like teen party moment where there's always like that one person who's got a guitar or somebody that's like they would call themselves like an old soul, you know, and like <laughs> yep. this is that moment like with that character that thinks that way. But it's also really interesting from another perspective, because I don't necessarily think that that is acted per se. I think that like, this is a movie full of a bunch of teenagers and probably to a certain extent, uh, Mila Jovovich thought that she was that person because she was a teenager making this movie at this time. And just the whole party scene, um, I, I don't know, reminds me of like an era where all the, all the, the young actors thought they were going to be like the next Brando and the next, you know, Al Pacino or whoever it might be, the next De Niro. And it's just like a scene of people like battling to be more attractive to the camera and their little moments of pathos. So, yeah, I can completely see that in particular with Mila, as you said. And then with Pickford, too, and his whole, like, we're the aliens, we're the savages, <laughs> and just, and <laughs> and that kind of rings true with a lot of his performance right. through the movie, where he's trying to, like you said, be the next Brando. Yeah. But more about Mila and the song, mm-hmm. what I found really interesting is that, so originally what they wanted for this scene was Neil Young's After the Gold Rush. Mm. But they couldn't afford it. Sure. So I always thought that Slater's line was a little bit odd, (laughs) where he says, or actually it's Pickford's that says, do you know what that song's about? It's about aliens. And Mm -hmm. then the song is called The Alien Song for those. (laughs) (laughs) And so it's like, okay, yeah, obviously. But it makes more sense if they actually had After the Gold Rush, which isn't really about aliens, but it does mention them. And so it's kind of fun to imagine how that would have worked. Mm-hmm. And that would have been a much more natural thing for the character Michelle to be playing. Right. But in actuality, she is playing a song from her own album, which, mm-hmm. so this movie came out in 93. Her album, The Divine Comedy, comes out in 94. And when they're making this movie and they need a song for it, so 
what I heard is that this is a quote from Jason David Scott. He was a unit publicist for the movie. And he said, nobody realized it was a real song on her album. We <laughs> thought it was just Mila improvising. <laughs> so it is odd that that ended up included when Linklater was so stringent about making sure all of the songs that he used all were actually out at the time that this movie was set. Even yeah. to the point of there was something that came out later in the year. And he's like, nope, that summer, that album wasn't out yet. Yeah. And it's like, except for the one song that didn't come out till 1994. Yeah. <laughs> so... I mean, maybe she really is an old soul and she's, <laughs> you know, some kind of time traveling being. Well, I think the thing that to even further encapsulate it is like, I think like a year before or the year of the, the you know, year that Days and Confused came out, like X-Files debuted, that we were like at the height of like UFO frenzy. And I don't really know that that was necessarily a 70s you know thing like definitely people love to get high and like speculate you know and and pontificate but like i don't know if they necessarily were like focused on the aliens man but there's a, a really specifically like early 90s notion in and of itself and i, I kind of wondered to a certain extent if like he ended up keeping it because of the scene that follows you know kind of the, is is intertwined with them kind of you know, going off on conspiracy theories and stuff. And that was a little bit more in the vein of like scenes from Slacker. Mm -hmm. You're talking about how kind of going into the next track Slater goes on. Yeah. And he starts talking about how the founding fathers grew weed. Right. The Washington had a bowl waiting for him. And, <laughs> yeah. And, and, yeah. I think that you're onto something there because one of the things, Melissa, the author of the oral history said that she's had a lot of conversations with people who told her, Oh my gosh, I've had that exact conversation with people when they're stoned. And so I, I think that it just kind of struck a nerve of authenticity. Sure. <laughs> just yeah. authentic stoner rambling. So we have the song of Mila's and then the song that they wanted of Neil Young's. If they made a movie about your high school days, what song would play on the soundtrack in your version of this scene? So I thought about this a lot. And to be quite honest, I think it would still be this song, given that it is a song from the 90s. And I should clarify, I saw this movie in the theater when I was like just going into high school. Cool. So it was very much like a like like a, a song of its time. So it, it might be still something like this. It's like somewhere like in the orbit of like a and and her album that that followed is sort of in the orbit of like a Tori Amos kind of like I don't know Kate Bush. Like I I, I it wouldn't surprise me if those sort of artists like really inspired her. But it's a really kind of quintessentially '90s instinct, I guess it would say, and like some of the instrumentation and stuff. Outside of that, I guess I would say like 
maybe 1979 by the pumpkins or something like that but i don't know if it was out at that point i love that song though so do i yeah And you are exactly right. Kate Bush was an influence on Mila's music. (laughs) Here's a quote from Rolling Stone Australia at the time of her album's release. And by the way, if like me, if you haven't ever heard her album, I gave it a listen. It's really not bad. Like I thought it would just be a vanity project, Mm -hmm. but it's pretty interesting. And what she said in Rolling Stone Australia is my music is very dark. It's a mix between Kate Bush, Sinead O'Connor, this mortal coil and the cockatoo twins. So, so yeah, that's what she was going for. And yeah, I think you can absolutely see it. I remember this album in the nineties and they used to play, um, the music video for this song called gentlemen who fell, I think was the name of it. Mm-hmm. They would play it and it sometimes would show up on like 120 minutes on MTV, which I'm not sure how many people are still familiar with, but it was like Matt Pinfield and they would show a bunch of grunge music. And then every once in a while, I feel like the song was just kind of shoved into the mix and his gravelly voice would be there and be like, <laughs> that's a track from Mila Jovovich. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's just a really specific moment in time. So you encountered this back in the day. Definitely. Yes, absolutely. And I was aware of her as an actor. What do you think was, so you saw this movie in the theater. Was that your introduction to her or did you see Fifth Element first? No, I had not. So Fifth Element, I think, came out about three or four years after this. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was aware of Mila from the movie Return to the Blue Lagoon because I was an HBO kid. Uh, okay. <laughs> I would watch whatever was on HBO pretty much. And to date, I've seen apparently thousands of movies, at least according to Letterboxd. And I would say probably at least a thousand of those I watched on HBO and Return to the Blue Lagoon was a movie that she was in and if no one is familiar with kind of the setup of those films it's basically like two nude teenagers on an island in both the uh, first film and and the second film so Mila was one of those in the the second film and there's not there's not like actual nudity I guess I would say it's like Sort of like the way they did Avatar, where the hair is always like on someone's chest or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so this movie would play in the middle of the day as a kid <laughs> during the summers, and it would come on, you know, a couple times a week. So I ended up seeing uh, Mila Jovovich a bunch uh, and seeing a, a, a lot of her. And then it was very weird uh, to then see this film and see that she was hardly in it at all. Yeah. Yeah, I totally forgot about the whole return to the Blue Lagoon thing. And then I also realized afterwards that my question about whether you saw Fifth Element first made no sense because you (laughs) said you saw Dazed and Confused in the theater. And I knew that it didn't come out till I think Fifth Element is like 97. That's correct. Yep, you got it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, 
So chalk that one up to me being sleepy, but I, I like the call out to the return to the Blue Lagoon. Although I, I've never seen the Mila one. I've seen the Brooke Shields one. Right. They're, I mean, they're really not as horny as they hype them up to be. Right. Yes. Yeah. It's that, that was the thing that was weird is I remember the first time it came on as a kid, I was like, it's the middle of the day, HBO. Are you sure? Because um, they used to reserve that stuff for after 10 o'clock. And I thought like maybe they'd slipped up. And so, you know, me and my sister were just trying to entertain ourselves and we left it on and we were just kind of like cautiously like, is this okay for us to be watching? I don't know. And then, you know, finally we got through the whole thing and it ended up being something that was just on all the time. But <laughs> right. um, yeah, it it definitely... It definitely has more of a connotation, I guess I would say, than it does like in actuality. Yeah, yeah. It promises more horniness than it delivers. <laughs> yeah. You, what you're going to get more of is like weird shipwrecked guys with whiskers. Like <laughs> <laughs> there's lots of like weird drunk guys and like a lot of nautical stuff, surprisingly, and Maybe incest. I can't quite remember. Ooh, I don't remember that part. Maybe that, that's a maybe that's the second one. I don't, I don't. I did end up seeing them both, and they're kind of intertwined in my mind because I think they're basically the same movie. Yeah, yeah. That movie's probably due for a reboot too. <laughs> yeah. I, hopefully, they would you know not get actual teenagers in this day and age to play those roles. Yes. Let's not do that again. Yeah. <laughs> All right, all right, all right. So you said for you, the song, either it might be Mila's song or it might be 1979 for your version of the scene. But going back to the scene as it is, Mm -hmm. do you feel like the song enhances it? Or I know that you were talking a bit about these actors sort of trying to be the most impressive to the camera. Did you feel that a little bit with her singing too or how do you feel like that this kind of works in the scene yeah so i maybe i'm coming at it from an an interesting perspective but you know when i saw this when i was a kid in the theater the, the movie made absolutely no sense to me because i hadn't been through high school at all i was just going to high school so my biggest fear about this movie was that i would go into high school and be paddled that somehow i had oh, not no. i had not learned like the etiquette of high school and that paddling was just a normal thing because the movie kind of does posit this world where like, yeah, sometimes you just, you know, are are physically abused and you just got to deal with it. Uh, And I was like, oh, I didn't know any older kids who really that I really talked to. So this movie like instilled a deep fear in me about that happening. But as I got older uh, and then I did, you know, nothing major, but I did some work on, you know, my own projects, video projects and movies and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And then I grew as also a film fan and, you know, um, ran a, a, a film commentary website and stuff like that when i see this movie now i imagine like from a director's perspective or like just the production of the film like the logistics of having all of these like 
very, very thirsty actors in one big scene and then giving them each their own little moments and them feeling like the camera kind of on them and them, you know, workshopping their little moments together. And it sounds in a lot of ways kind of horrifying. Mm. <laughs> but that specific moment when she's like playing the song, that's such a like a the camera's on me kind of moment. And then she kind of mimics like looking up into the stars, although she's like probably under a tree. Um, (laughs) So it's just one of those moments where like a bunch of things are happening, right? Like she's an active teenager in that scene. So she's like, she doesn't have more experience than that as, as an actor to necessarily like give you. So all you can kind of do is like let her be a teenager and like do what what seems right as a teenager and i don't know about you but most of the things i did as a teenager are now just so cringeworthy like i so i would wonder like if she looks back on this and was like yeah that's what i should have done i should have like looked up at the non-existent aliens in the sky you know or something like that yes everything that i did as a teenager cringeworthy just <laughs> and Every time I think about something like TikTok that exists for teens now, I'm so grateful that it didn't exist then. Right. Because most of that cringeworthy content of mine has just been erased from human existence. Right, exactly. Yeah, and I wonder to a certain extent if this is like their TikTok Like if they watched this movie and and a lot of them were just getting started out, you know, and they had Mm -hmm. big hopes and dreams. And I should also mention that this is kind of like the end of an era where you would have a big ensemble film because literally like in that same time frame, Jurassic Park hits and it becomes apparent that, you know, special effects are going to be the primary stars of films. So like Mm. the idea that you would become a Brando or you would become the next James Dean or Meryl Streep or whatever it might be, that kind of started to die out uh, at that time. So although a lot of those people achieved like those heights in terms of fame, I don't know that they ever became like the great actors you know that uh, of their generation necessarily that they wanted to be so i wonder if they watch it and they see them like themselves swinging for the fences as as hard as they can to you know other eyes yeah you know who i would pull out from that description from this scene is rory cochran right yeah definitely because i think that there's a real contrast to the try hard, pay attention to me, I'm acting with a capital A mm-hmm. style that you're seeing from some of the other cast. Mm-hmm. And what he did to really nail that character of Slater. Mm-hmm. And I've just, I've gained more appreciation for his acting as I've been paying closer attention going track by track. And and then just reading some things behind the scenes, him talking about, oh, a lot of the cast, of course, they were partying, they were smoking weed. And he said, well, he didn't really want to smoke too much because he wanted to be focused on how he was portraying being stoned. And right. you see him making a lot of 
really smart and deliberate choices just about his body language and his facial expressions. And when he rambles on like a stoner, you believe that he's kind of in that way where he's fallen in love with his own idea. And it's like, (laughs) man, I've got to tell you about this. So yeah, yeah, I do appreciate what he's doing there. Yeah, I think he's really good at being present. Like, that's one of the big things for actors is you have to act as though you don't know that the next line is coming, you know, and that you're you're listening to the person. You're not just waiting for them to finish and then for you just to give your next line. And I think that he was really good at that. And, and I actually just rewatched the film last night, and I forgot just how much I knew a guy that was exactly like this, except he wore a Green Day shirt, but otherwise was... <laughs> was exactly the same. I knew a dude just like this in the early 90s. And so it was a little like revisiting a guy that I knew out of all the characters. Like no one else necessarily like felt like someone I had known in school uh, more than, than Slater. What was that guy's name? In real life, I honestly cannot remember. I think it was like Joe or something like that. He was in my graphic arts class and he had the same posture and uh, I don't know that I was like cognizant enough to know that he was a pothead at that time because I was mm-hmm. uh, a little younger than everybody else in my grade. So um, I was just kind of naively going through life. But this guy was like a real life Shaggy from Scooby Doo, and he talked <laughs> in those same patterns. And he had that that character. I think really he could have like existed in the 90s with no problem and I, I i felt a little confused i remembered seeing it the first time exactly when it was taking place because so much of the 90s was also the 70s in a, in a way like stylistically and people trying to like you know them wearing the led zeppelin shirts and stuff mm-hmm. and it felt a little muddled to me at the time and i think a lot of that is because i didn't really have the strong frame of reference for the 70s obviously like link letter did but yeah that guy i know for a fact verbatim could exist in 1993 you know with no problems oh yeah for sure well so you you talked about that guy's green day shirt how about the fashion in this movie and you also noted how it was cyclical the 70s recurred again in the 90s was there anyone's style that stood out to you the most in this movie either in a good or a bad way i think you know there's the um i'm sorry i'm I'm really terrible with the names the uh redhead character and the sister yeah cynthia and um the the and Jody. Um Mitch's sister? Sorry, not no, the the um redhead uh male and the um yeah, Mitch's sister. Yeah. Um uh, they both had like the most, I think, like overt styling with the really tight jeans in the earlier scene. But I, I really appreciate like just overall how they didn't necessarily lay it on thick. And I really like the, you know, just iron on decal that um I'm totally blanking on his name right now mcconaughey McConaughey, yeah that that wooderson has uh that just feels so although i you know have read that the book the making of the film and and stuff i i understand that it's literally an iron on it just feels so like right that seems like a shirt my dad would have had or something like that like that just really stands out to me and his pink pants um (laughs) 
It's just <laughs> such a weird, like, stylistic choice where he almost kind of has like a Peter Pan almost kind of look with his like rolled up sleeves. The other thing I guess I would say is I, I live in Texas right now and it is ungodly hot here. So more than anything, I felt immense sympathy for all of the actors in the film, especially the ones that were wearing pants, because the amount of time that you would wear pants and it would not be winter here is is a small tight window so i have to imagine that they were just sweating buckets in those scenes yeah yeah i feel for them as well (laughs) and (laughs) i was just trying to imagine if like cargo shorts were a thing in the 70s yet i don't think they had come along yet i think jorts is maybe about as good as we got you know Mm-hmm. The other thing, though, is it's fascinating that you noted Wooderson's Peter Pan look. Yeah. Because when he describes that character, he says that Wooderson feels like he's out Peter pan Peter Pan. Yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah. So that was a neat call out. Yeah, I, I I hadn't heard that myself, but I, I really picked up on it on this, you know, last viewing. And this is I've only seen it three times, you know, over the years. I saw it once, you know, of course, in the theater and then again, maybe last year or something like that. And it, it was like drinking wine when you're a kid versus when you're an adult or drinking mm. beer. You know what I mean? Like like you taste it and you're like, I don't understand how anybody likes this. <laughs> right. And then, you know, as an adult, you get it and you're like, I totally get it. I get all the like the subtle flavors. I, I understand why this is like a, a normal thing for you, you know, but there was a lot of complexity to it that I think really comes out. And there's also um, kind of an Austin story being told. I think that I don't have the frame of reference for. I was just in Austin last week and trying to like piece together some of the like the geography. But I think there's an Austin story being told as well. Like just if you were someone that grew up in that town and in that time that you would be able to like really latch on to the movements you know it almost has like a um lord of the rings kind of thing going on where it's like you know they're taking the hobbits to isengard kind of (laughs) thing you know i really want someone to write an essay mapping those two (laughs) stories together (laughs) and i did have a chance to talk to a friend of the show chuck who grew up in austin and and of course the top-notch burger Mm-hmm. That that's like a, a real join, and he's like, yeah, I've been there. But what was even cooler to me is he played football in high school, and he played on that field where yeah. they, you know, smoke a joint on the fifty-yard line later. So yeah, an Austin story being told. I dig that. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Austin, I think, is a different town in a lot of ways, but I still think you could kind of go and like get that flavor and understand it. Yeah, I'm hoping to get there someday. You know, check out some of the filming locations. Take my little. Link later tour. Yeah, I think that would be cool. <laughs> yeah, just get ready for it to be uh, plenty warm, I guess I would say. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so cargo shorts or jorts. Yeah. If, I, if, I, if you really want to like LARP it, yeah, I would say jorts. Okay. Jorts and a rolled up t shirt. You know. There we go. Cool. Well, Josh, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for joining. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was great to uh, watch it again and try to like process a movie in a way that I get to talk about it again. I mean, I I see so many of them, so I I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Well, cool. I will talk to you soon. All right. Talk to you later. Not to worry. There's a new fiesta in the making. 
Join us at the Moon Tower, our Facebook listeners group. Until next time, just keep living, man. L-I-V-I-N. The Scavengers Network. Creator-driven. Community-focused. Treasured content. Are you a fan of Boy Meets World? Do you enjoy rewatch podcasts? Well, then you should check out The Lost Years, a retrospective fan cast hosted by me, Tay. And me, Sid. It's my favorite show of all time. And I've never seen it. Each week, we're recapping a new episode of Boy Meets World, sharing bits of nostalgia and learning a wholesome lesson. Join us on our rewatch journey, won't you? School's in session every Tuesday, wherever you find your podcasts. What else do you need to know?